The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. We are nearing, at this point, the end of our series on the big picture themes of the Bible. So far, we've examined the gospel as the central truth of all of Scripture. We've heard about the Emmanuel principle of God's plan to dwell with us. We saw the glory of Christ in the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. We inspected the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility and Last week, we traced the covenants as the backbone of God's unfolding plan throughout all of the Bible. Now today, we arrive at another central theme of the scripture, which is the law. As you certainly know, there are many commands in the Bible. There are many do's and there are many don'ts. In fact, just the Mosaic Code has 613 specific laws. These laws included everything from dietary restrictions, what you can eat, what you cannot eat, all the way down to burial rituals. But we are supposed to be doing these things, yes or no? Are we supposed to adhere to all of these laws? Which ones are we supposed to pick and which ones are we supposed to avoid? As Christians, we should want to know exactly what God wants from us. We should want to know exactly what he desires us to do so that we can live lives that are pleasing to him. So this morning... We will be considering the whole of Scripture, starting from Genesis and going through Revelation, to answer the one question, what does God really want from us as New Testament believers? The outline will be as follows. First, we will look at the origin of the law. Then we will consider the limitations of the law. Then we will consider the purpose of the law. Then the end of the law, and we will close with the law of Christ. But let's not attempt to understand this in our own strength. Doing so would be futile. Instead, I ask that you would join me this morning in praying that God's word would work in us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, your word says in Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. God, I ask today that you would help this to be true for us that we would have a sensitivity to desiring to do your will. I pray, Lord, that we would have an established heart strengthened by you, that you would strengthen our ability to delight in doing your will. Not just that we would have the outward actions of a Christian, but that we would have an inward heart that desires and pursues righteousness. I thank you, Lord, that you have put the law of Christ in the heart of everyone who belongs to you. And I ask that you would be with me today as I attempt to give glory to your name and give clarity to your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me speak clearly and persuasively with words of passion and compassion. And may your name be exalted. May your name be lifted high this morning as we hear these words. Lord, I thank you that we can do this by the proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Laws in our country are sometimes very strange. In Chicago, for example, it is illegal to eat inside of a building that is currently burning down. In Arizona, it's illegal for donkeys to sleep in a bathtub. And in Indiana, for some reason, 
For legal purposes, the value of pi is 3. For those who are interested in math, that should be quite disturbing. There's even a law in Nicholas County in West Virginia which says, and I quote, no member of the clergy is permitted to tell jokes or humorous stories from the pulpit during church services. Yeah. I wouldn't have an issue with that, honestly. People can make up some crazy rules, and that's because there's all sorts of crazy things that people do. But the laws of scriptures are, the scripture are not like the laws that we design. God is not short-sighted, and God is not reactionary. It is illegal in Idaho to fish while riding a camel because somebody tried to do it and nearly drowned. So they created a law. It is reactionary. But God does not respond to us and therefore create laws. God has given laws perfectly and for perfect purposes. So the question we need to ask is, why did God give the law? Where does it come from? What is the origin of the law? Which will be our first point this morning. The origin of the law. When was the first occurrence of law in the Bible? The first command that God ever gives to anyone is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In it, we see the regulation and we see the promised punishment for breaking that regulation. This is the first time we see a law given in the entire Bible. What I want you to see here is that this law is for a particular people and for a particular time. It was not an eternal mandate that is still to be followed by us who are living today. It was not an eternal code. Rather, God set an angel to guard the garden when they were kicked out after consuming this, this fruit. And he said that no one might ever eat of it again. In other words, that tree is now gone. And that law no longer applies. But what about after Eden? Interestingly enough, the word law does not actually appear in your Bible until we get to the book of Exodus, until we get to Moses. But even though there was no law expressly given, God's standards were always present and God's standards still held true. Cain knew that he was not supposed to kill Abel, yet he did. God destroyed the world with a flood before the law came. Why? Because he saw that wickedness filled the earth. And he said that every intent of the heart of man was continuously evil towards God. In other words, if they are evil towards God, they are intentionally breaking his standards. So God destroyed the world with the flood. But what about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? We need to remember those people lived before the law was given. Were they breaking God's law? That's a difficult question to answer unless we understand what is going on legally between us and God. They lived 450 years before the law would be written down. So were these people under the law? They were under the law of the Lord, but not under the law given by Moses. We find this answer, for example, in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Now, before we read it, I want to tell you, today we are going to be going through a lot of of scripture. And so many times I'm going to move through them really rapidly. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to ask if you have any questions, please jot them down because at the end of today's sermon, we're going to take a few minutes for questions and answers. And if you have anything that's really confusing, I will do my best to answer them at that time. 
So here we find in Romans 2, verses 12 through 16, where it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, those people who came before the law of Moses were in was uh, in the world are not going to be judged by it for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before god but the doers of the law who will be justified for when gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot to be said about what is here. We're not going to have time to unpack it all. So for the sake of time and simplicity, I simply want to highlight two things that are present here. First, it makes it very clear that there are two kinds of people. There are the kind of people who are under the law, and there are the kind of people who are not under the law. However, it also explains that we who do not have the law are not under the law or are bound to it. We are, we are still bound to living under the character of God. So it says here that they know by instinct what is right and what is wrong. Or as verse 15 calls it, every person has a conscience. Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 through 3 is literally that everyone who has ever lived, other than Jesus Christ, is guilty as a lawbreaker. So this is not trying to show us that we are somehow capable of following some rule set of rules in order to be made righteous. Rather, what it is saying is those who are part of the law, under the law, and those who are not under the law are both guilty because both of them have a standard. One is directly written, which is the law of Moses, and the others have a law that is written permanently by the nature of how God designed us. So this means that no one is righteous, no, not one, as it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. For as it says, no one is righteous, no, not one. That includes the people who have never heard of the law, because every last one of us knows the difference between good and evil. We all know that we are breaking an eternal command of the Lord when we sin. But when the Bible uses the word law, it is almost never talking about this innate, inborn conscience, this sense of God's righteous standards. When the Bible uses the term law, it is almost always exclusively talking about the law of Moses. It is talking about the written code of the Jewish people. That is why we often, today in this sermon, I will try my best to make sure that when I am speaking about the law of Moses, I will use that term specifically. God gave the law to Moses at Sinai. The first five books of the Bible are considered to be the law, but God gave a summary statement of the law of Moses that we call the Ten Commandments. That was our reading this morning. I'm sure many of you are very familiar. In fact, if you grew up in the church, you probably, like I did, memorized the Ten Commandments as a child. The important thing to see here is that these Ten Commandments are a summary statement of all of those 613 commands that God was given. Most of the other commands are found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, for example, are grounded in one of these. You can find specifically and draw a line how this relates exactly to what those laws are. But just like the law given to Adam and Eve, this law, the law given to Moses, was for a particular people 
and for a particular time. It was never intended to be a once-for-all declaration for all peoples to live by. God did not ever give these commands to anyone other than the nation of Israel, nor did he ever command that the people of Israel tell anyone else in the world about these commands. He did not say, you need to go to those Amalekites over there and give them the Ten Commandments. That is because these laws had a very particular purpose and some deeply significant limitations. Which brings us now to point number two, the limitations of the law. We have already seen that the law is only for a particular people, and we will see later much more clearly that it is only for a particular time. However, it is important to see how the New Testament speaks about the law so that we do not ever overestimate what God was doing by giving the law through Moses. Now, I'm simply going to shotgun 10 limitations at you this morning, but I want you to know these are not the only limitations we find in the New Testament. When the New Testament speaks about the Mosaic law, you will see that it often sounds very negative because it is focusing on the limitations that it has. So again, if you have questions, please write them down for the time of Q&A after. Limitation number one, nobody will ever be justified by the law. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Here we go. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. The law cannot justify your soul. Number two, the law which is holy and righteous and good cannot make you holy, righteous, and good. It can only make you sinful beyond measure, as it says. Romans chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law can't make you holy. It only actually shows you that you are truly, richly sinful. Third, the law, if the law worked to actually bring someone into a right relationship with God, then faith is completely irrelevant and unnecessary. We see this in Romans chapter 4, verse 14. It says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So if following the law is what makes you right with God, then what in the world are we doing here? Why have faith? It's pointless. Fourth, we will see in the very next verse that the law actually brings wrath on the people who follow it. It says, Romans 4.15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now we see the fifth thing. The law is an unbearable burden. It is a heavy weight, too heavy to carry. In Acts chapter 15, we read about the first church council which took place in jerusalem and the question that they were discussing was whether or not we are going to take these jewish regulations and impose them on gentile people who have never before experienced them and as they are discussing these things it comes up in uh for uh, acts chapter 15 verse 10 when they say now therefore why are you putting god to the test 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What are they saying here? Why would we give them the law? Nobody could ever bear it. It is unbearable and heavy. Number six, the law brings condemnation. Romans chapter eight, verses two through four says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Notice that that is how it describes the law of Moses by calling it the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Another limitation by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He is putting two things in absolute opposition to one another. You are either walking under the law or you are walking according to the, uh, which is the flesh, or you are walking according to the spirit. If you are walking under the law, you are in the flesh. If you are walking according to the spirit, then you are walking by the spirit. So how are we able to be righteous? Is it by the law? Paul says, absolutely not. Rather, it is by the work of Christ in us that makes us righteous. Number seven, Paul compares living under the law to being in prison. Now, if anybody knew about prison, it was Paul. So he's not just writing fluff here. This is not an empty metaphor. He says, Galatians chapter three, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Paul says that living under the law is like living in prison. Similarly, in the next chapter, this is number eight, Paul would compare being under the law to being a slave. Galatians chapter four, verses 21 through 26. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, I know there's a lot to dig into there, but the main point that I want you to see right now is that those who are under the law, according to Paul, are slaves, spiritually speaking. There are two kinds of people. There are people who are slaves because they are under the, uh, the code of Mount Sinai, Or he says here, there is another covenant. There is another set of commands that is freeing, not enslaving. Number nine, not only is the law a ministry of death that brings condemnation, it was also designed to have a temporary glory that was intended to fade. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, again, there's a lot to see here. There's a few things I want you to see. In short, the law that God gave came with a great deal of glory at Sinai. Remember, Moses walked down and his face was literally shining so the people would not look at him. They made him put a veil over his face, which Paul gets to here in the next few verses here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But what I want you to understand about that is that glory was temporary and fading. He eventually took that veil off. And Paul is going to be telling them over and over in 2 Corinthians 3, the glory that comes from salvation, is not fading it is permanent and he he grounds that in what he says here that the glory of the law itself is fading but the glory of the new covenant is permanent he says that one was intended to go away and the other was not several years ago at the ocean city bible conference the bidion Nubuile gave a great sermon about planned obsolescence of the law he said my phone that i have in my pocket just came out this past week or so however they already have the next one designed and they will release it a year from now, and I will buy it. He said, that is planned obsolescence. The design is so that this will already be obsolete the moment it comes on the market. God created the old covenant law with a form of planned obsolescence. It was designed to have an expiration date. Which brings us to number 10. There are many more aspects of the law presented in the New Testament, but for the sake of time, this is the last one. Following the law of Moses does not make anyone righteous now in philippians chapter 3 paul makes a point by highlighting specific truths about his own spiritual resume before he was saved by christ let's consider what he says about himself he says starting in philippians 3 verse 5 and 6 that he was circumcised on the eighth day that he was of the people of israel he was of the tribe of benjamin he was a hebrew of hebrews as to the law a Pharisee, in other words, the most strictly you could adhere to the law was according to the law of the Pharisees. And he says, as to zeal, was a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Have you ever met anybody who just completely overestimates their own value? You have, I know you have. Have you ever met one of those sports fans who, who really delusionally thinks that the team won because they were standing in the crowds yelling for them to win? Have you ever met that employee who thinks their entire company would have shut down without him or her? Or what about that guy who, evangel you, when you're evangelizing, says, I'm a really good person. I think God would let me into heaven. We overestimate ourselves all the time. Those people that I'm mentioning now are good pictures of overestimating what you are doing. However, I want you to understand, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is speaking truth. He is not lying. He is not exaggerating. He is not overestimating himself when he says that as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Literally, that means nobody could point the finger to him and say, here's how you broke the law, Paul. Paul does not see this, though as being of any value. In fact, he sees this as negative value. The very next verses say in verses 7 through 9, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. This is not a net gain. This is a net negative. And then he continues, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, including all of those things he listed earlier that we just read off, I count those things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because it can't do that, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He was never made righteous even for a moment by following the law. Paul gained all that anyone ever could from the law, yet he regarded that as rubbish. Now this is a fun Greek word. The word skibalon, which literally means sewage or human refuse or human waste. It is a disgusting picture that he is making. He is saying, all that good stuff that I was doing before I knew Christ was nothing more than poo. That should make you laugh, but that should also make you look at your own life and the way that you have viewed your efforts before God to earn his favor and say, it is of no value. It is worthless. So if the law is fading, it's a ministry of death, it cannot justify but only brings condemnation and wrath and treats us like a prisoner and slave and gives us an unbearable burden to carry, then why on earth did God ever give the law in the first place? What was the point? So we come to point number three, the purpose of the law. There are two reasons that we're going to focus on for the next few minutes, although I I know that there are more that we could spend time with if you're interested. We want to focus down on these two things. First of all, God gave the law so that sin would increase. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, here's where we need to focus in carefully. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see what he is saying here? The law came to increase the trespass. So he mentions a trespass. He talks about the trespass of Adam. The word trespass literally means there's a line and you step across it. And he's saying, now what happened here is sin, the law came so that there would be more lines in the sand so that as people stepped across them, sin would increase. It doesn't mean their heart is any more wicked. It means that he is showing them over and over and over, I have standards and you are not following them. He is showing them the depth of their own personal depravity by developing these laws that he has given. So why would God want trespass to increase? I remember reading that at one point and saying, is this really supposed to be in my Bible? God wants there to be more sin? And the answer is, these people are not more wicked. God is just revealing the depths of their own wickedness by showing them, you are not good. Now, I don't want to take anything for granted this morning. It is very possible that there are people here in this room who are living according to some law that has been created and think that they are righteous before God because of following some set of actions or activities. It is possible for people to come to church every week and think that that makes them right with God. 
I shared the gospel with somebody just a couple of weeks ago who said, I'm sure I'm a Christian. I was baptized. That means nothing if there's not been a transformation of the heart. For him, the law that he had set forth was baptism. Maybe it's church attendance for you. Maybe it's giving. Maybe you have set some kind of a moral code that I don't lie or smoke or cheat or steal or I don't do things that are evil against the, the U.S. government like cheating on my taxes. I don't do these sorts of things. Therefore, I am right with God. But those are not the standards that God has set forth for you. And what you must understand is before God, you are just like me. You are a lawbreaker. And you are desperate in need of the grace of God. For without the grace of God, no one will see heaven. So if you are standing here attempting to get to heaven in your own righteousness, I want to point you right back to Paul who says there was nothing he did, nothing that gained him one ounce of favor with God. And you are in desperate need of God's favor because the Bible says if you are in your sin, you are an enemy of God and under his wrath. So if you are currently living in such a way that you think your righteous deeds are enough to get you to heaven, I want you to lovingly, I want to lovingly tell you you are wrong. And by the grace of God to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and say, Jesus, I need you. The reason he went to the cross was to pay for sin and to buy the right for sinners like you and I to be in heaven. He bought a place for us by taking all of the sin that I have committed and putting it on his shoulders. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that he bought your freedom at the cross. So if you're here today and you are living currently under a law of some kind, I call on you to run from that and run to grace, run to the cross and fall at the feet of Jesus and say, thank you for paying for my sin. And if you believe the Lord died for your sin and rose again for your justification, you will be saved. So I don't want to ever take anything for, God, for granted with the gospel. If you are here and you need to know that, need to know more detail about that, please speak to me before you go. We want to make sure you know Christ and him crucified. But there's another reason that the law was given. Galatians chapter 3 verses 24 through 26 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law is a kind of guardian, a watchman, a tutor, an instructor to point us to Christ when he comes. It was designed to be an end at some point, but the end of that was always designed to be Christ, not the law itself. It was always intended to point to the fact that there is a Messiah coming. So when you put these two purposes together, you see that the law was always designed to show our inability to honor God, to show that the people of Israel were unworthy of God. In short, the law was designed to show us that man is not holy, but God is. But as we've seen already, the law was temporary. The law was fading the law was quickly coming to an end. So why did that happen? What does it look like? How and when did the law of Moses actually stop? That brings us now to point number four, the end of the law. I want to start this point by addressing the most common argument against it. I want you to understand there are many, many people, brothers in Christ who love the Lord dearly, who would disagree with what I'm telling you right now. And they would say the law of Moses continues until Christ returns. And that we must still do the old covenant laws, for example, honoring and obeying the Sabbath day. Or some of them would go so far as to say we shouldn't meet on Sundays at all. We should be meeting 
on Saturday. Some people would say that we need to follow the food laws. But I want to tell you that these things are dangerous because they draw you away from the truth of what the scripture actually tells us. And so I want to give you their most common argument. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 says, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when Jesus says this, he is referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. When you say the law or the prophets, that was a way for them to categorically speak about everything from Genesis all the way until the end of Malachi. It was a way for them to simply state, I'm not just talking about the first five books, I'm talking about the entirety of the Old Testament writings. Law and prophets was just a summary term. So let me ask the question, what is in the book of the prophets? What do they contain? What are, what are we supposed to learn from those words? Well, part of what is in those, those books are prophecies. If they're prophets, they are writing prophecies, right? And part of Jesus' promise here is to fulfill the prophets, which I take to mean that he is going to fulfill all the promises that are made in the books of the prophets, right? So far, you're tracking with me? This is an important step to the argument. So let's think this through. A prophecy is fulfilled when? When it comes to conclusion or fulfillment. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, for example, prophesies that there is going to be a Messiah born in the little town of Bethlehem. And we see, according to Matthew chapter 2 verse 6, that that prophecy is fulfilled when? When Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there is an end to that prophecy. The prophecy comes to a conclusion because it is fulfilled. Fulfilled means, to some extent, that it has been completed or finished. In the same way, we can understand that Jesus came to live under the law of Moses in order to complete it, in order to bring it to its rightful end in order to fulfill it not to set it aside or to ignore it or to say this has no purpose in my life but to say instead i have come so that i might bring it to its perfect completion so we see for example that jesus was born under the law galatians chapter 4 verse 4 it says but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of woman born under the law. So yes, he was definitely born under the law. He lived under the law. He experienced the law. He practiced the law. He did what the people of Israel never were able to do. He actually did everything that was set forth in those 613 commands. And he did them not just externally, but from the inside out with a heart of worship for the lawgiver. But does this mean that the law actually comes to an end? Remember, the law was for a particular people and for a particular time. So how do we know that the cross was the end time of the law of Moses? How do we know that? Well, Paul makes this very clear for us from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. When speaking about the ways that Jews and Gentiles should love one another, he says, verse 14, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? How did he break down the division between Jew and Gentile? He says, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
Here we see that there is an abolition. There is an end. There is a time that this has come to a close. Why? So that there will no longer be this separation between Jew and Gentile. God is creating one distinct people that has no physical borders or boundaries, but is created by the Spirit of God. So we'll speak a lot more about that in our final sermon in the series, about who are the people of God. But I want you to see that God was making the the two into one, and this reconciliation could not possibly take place unless the law itself had been abolished. You cannot have any of the promises of the people of Israel unless the law itself had been broken down by Christ. Galatians 2.20 is a very famous verse. In fact, I bet many of the people here in the room have it memorized, have it learned by heart. It is a very famous verse for a very good reason. However, I think most of the time we read this and memorize it and speak it and go to it out of context. So let's see it in context, verses 19 19 through 21. For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, I don't think anyone here would ever say that Christ going to the cross was worthless, like it's saying, if you follow the law. Paul is arguing that when he was crucified with Christ, he died to the law. That his arrangement under the Mosaic Code was ended. There is no place for both law and gospel in the Christian life. It is one or it is the other. Paul puts it another way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How did he forgive us? He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Where do legal demands come from? They come from the law. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what did he set aside? It mentions two things, our record of debt and the legal code, which is the law. Some argue that it's only our record, our sins that have been nailed to the cross, not the Mosaic law. However, I think we should see it to be both of them because it becomes much more clear that that's true. When you read the following verses, Colossians 2, 16 through 17, immediately following, he goes to this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. In other words, do you see what he's saying? He's saying there is something, a legal code that has been nailed to the cross. And then he goes directly to the legal code and says, don't let anyone pass judgment because those things are a shadow. That shadow has been now fulfilled in the substance of which is Jesus himself. That brings us now to point number five, the law of Christ. So let me ask you the question. If I am saying we are no longer under the Mosaic law, there is no adherence to it required, that this is not what we are supposed to see ourselves under, then does this mean that we can do whatever we want? 
Oftentimes, for people who believe the way that our church teaches, they will accuse us and say, you are antinomian, which means you are against law. It means you can do whatever you want and you just live however you like. Well, let me tell you something. That is a sinful perspective that you can just live however you want and the grace of God will just continue to cover you. So why bother trying? When I was, when I was uh, growing up, I went on a mission trip. My first mission trip, actually, was uh, to the great nation of Australia. I was 13 years old, and we spent about two months there. And uh, while I was there, the neighboring, we were on a campground of sorts, and the neighboring kind of uh, guy over there had a ranch. And it was kind of on the other side of a patch of the rainforest. This area we were in, Queensland, Australia, is in the rainforest. And his cows kind of got out into the rainforest. So they drove over and they asked, oh, you know, mates, can you help us out? Can you just walk through the forest and get the cows out, right? And so we were like, okay. So this, our team was required to walk through the rainforest and try to scare the cows out in the direction of his field. So me and a group of about 27 other students, I was the youngest, I was 13 at the time, began walking through the rainforest of Australia. Now, you might have seen those little things, uh, clickbaity things on the Internet. It's like all the deadly things that can kill you in Australia. Well, it's true. There's a lot of terrifying things out there. Um, and as we were walking through, there were times where we would have to kind of get down into these creeks or these little bogs that were just sitting water, this disgusting, tepid, dis- moss-covered water so that we could get through to the other side of where we were supposed to go. And by the grace of God, this did not happen to me. But when we returned, we discovered that the majority of people on my mission team were covered in leeches. Not little leeches. I had seen little leeches before, the kind that are the size of my thumbnail. These, I mean, are leeches, the kind that are huge, and they're this big lump underneath of your your jeans or whatever. And it is terrifying because these people would come back and you can't feel them. They get on you and they secrete this kind of stuff that makes you not be able to sense that they're there until you see them and want to rip them off. And there are a lot of people emotionally scarred after this adventure. All I will say to this is quite simply, I know this is a flawed analogy, but we are not supposed to be leeches on the blood of Christ. It is not like, I just do whatever I want and God will take care of it. I'll just live with whatever kind of attitude I desire, doing whatever pleases me. That is not how the Bible ever describes a Christian. And we will see why in a moment. We're not simply to say, I'll go on sinning so that grace may abound. Paul emphasizes that truth in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He emphatically states it this way, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Notice in your Bible, there's an exclamation point. I want to explain that in Greek, there's no such thing as an exclamation point. So when you have it translated into English, very, very rarely will a translator ever choose to use an exclamation point. They only do that when the, the literal wording or the Greek wording in the New Testament is so severe that they cannot avoid putting it there. This word is an extremely emphatic statement, by no means, absolutely not. We will not just go on sinning so that grace may abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So what responsibilities do we have? What are our marching orders? What does Christ actually expect from us? What law do we live under? The answer to all of that is what we call the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 21 says it this way. It says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Notice, parenthetical, very important statement. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul makes two things very clear here. First of all, I am not under the law of Moses, but secondly, I am under a law that he calls the law of Christ. So the question that we're going to ask for the remainder of our time this morning is this. What in the world is the law of Christ? What is it that God wants from us? At its most basic, we find the answer to this in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus was giving them a commandment. He was giving them a law. He was commanding that they emulate him in his love that he has displayed for them. The Old Testament did command people to love each other. You'll actually find multiple commands of that, for example, at the end of Leviticus. However, this is a new command because Jesus was telling them, I don't just want you to love. I want you to love in the same manner that I have loved you. I want you to display selflessness to the extent that you are worshiping God by loving him first and loving others second. Literally every single command in the New Testament is grounded in the fact that Christ did something for you. Every place that there is something demanded of you, there is a reference first to what Christ did on your behalf. So at the root of it, to follow the law of Christ means to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The rest of the New Testament tells you how to carry that out. So if you read through the epistles and you come to all these lists of commands, like for example at the end of First uh, Thessalonians, you get to chapter 5, and it's just a boom, 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 a shotgun of all these commands. Why? Why are we to do these things? Because these are all aspects of what it looks like to love. Now, I want you to understand something. It's actually going to say this in the movie that we're watching on Tuesday, but I want to tell you now. In the New Testament, there is a reason that the first part of every book is, this is the grace of God that we see theologically, and the second part of every book is, this is now how you are to live. Grace of God comes before the action. Then we come to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, which tells us that how our acts of love actually are the fulfillment of the law itself. Let's look at that together. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We see that there is an expectation of obedience in the New Testament for us to follow God's commands. But it tells us in places like John chapter 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is what it looks like to love God. To keep his commandments. And then it says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Remember what we saw earlier in Acts chapter 15? Why would we give this to the Gentiles? It's too burdensome. It's too heavy to bear. But then when he speaks at this point about the law of Christ, he says, it's not burdensome. 
It's not a burden. It's not too heavy. Or as Jesus would put it, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But even though the law of Christ is not burdensome, it is far deeper and more broad than the law of Moses. God is not merely interested in what you eat or you know, the kind of clothing or how you wear your beard if you're a man. He's, he's actually interested in the, the root motivation of all of those things. He is interested in getting deeper than your outward expression and to what drives your outward expression, your heart. He is not merely interested in following a set of rules. The law of Christ deals with the deepest part of who you are. It gets deeper than any external law ever could. Every act of true obedience that we ever do is born out of a love for God and a love for neighbor. It doesn't matter if you do the right things, but your heart is wrong. It matters that your heart is right, and therefore you do what is right. All true Christians act in accordance with this law. Every true Christian will, according to the scripture. Why is this the case? Because God has written this new law on our heart. He has given us a holy passion for God's glory. He has given us the Holy Spirit who leads us into righteousness. So if you are saved, it means that you are a lover of God and a disciple, a student of Christ. It means that you are going to gain a taste for the holy each day. And you are going to be more and more disgusted with worldliness each day. Legalism is what happens when we attempt to gain God's approval or gain God's love by anything other than Christ himself. But if you are in Christ, I want you to know you are loved. And therefore, because you love, your response to that should be to love. So as we read earlier, the strongest evidence that you are a disciple of Jesus is that you love one another just as Christ has loved you. So I know this has been a really heavy sermon with a deluge of information. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to close this sermon out just as we have with every one of the sermons in this series by going to the book of Revelation and then we'll go to, I'll open the floor for a time of questions. But I do want to say, do you know that the word law never appears in the book of Revelation? It's not present even one time. As you go through the book of Revelation, uh, you'll never find it in those pages. It's The law is in 50 of the 66 books, but not this big one at the end of your Bible. But in Revelation chapter 21, 5 through 8, we see that there are two kinds of people. There are those who are lawbreakers and those who are thirsty for Christ and find their satisfaction in him. Let's see what it reads. Revelation 21, 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment to the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we see that even in the book of Revelation, there's a bifurcation here, a separation. There are those who are hungry and thirsty for Christ, who will be satisfied with him. And those who are attempting to live under some kind of code, they're all going to fall short. They will be judged for their acts. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your word is so full and rich. And I thank you that there is so much more that we could even consider in terms of your law and the law of Christ. But I pray, God, that you would give clarity and understanding to what I have presented this morning, that even though there was so much present, that you would help us to categorize your law rightly, that we would not see ourselves being required to follow 
something that you have rightfully brought to an end. But instead, we would seek to honor Christ as the New Testament commands us to. Help us, Lord, to honor you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Lord, I pray that for anyone here who doesn't know you and has never repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ, that you would break their heart of rebellion and sin today and that you might indeed bring them into the kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.